This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. When designing a product or a structure, the designers often think about who they're trying to attract, but they overlook who they are shutting out. For example, some products aren't user-friendly for left-handed people or those with disabilities or even different age groups. And a design that excludes a segment of consumers could fail to reach its full potential. Our next guest says there are inclusive design solutions that companies can use to benefit those beyond the target group. Kat Holmes is the user experience design director at Google. She's also the founder of Mismatch.com, and she's the author of the book Mismatch, How Inclusion Shapes Design. And a pleasure to have her joining us right now. Kat, welcome. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You know, it's interesting because the word inclusion is one that, that you, is used quite a bit these days in terms of society. But I'm guessing that there are many people that don't necessarily associate inclusion in, in terms of what we're talking about here with so many different aspects of business and culture. That's absolutely true. I think um, one thing I've learned in the process of both writing the book and doing this work with a number of companies is that inclusion means many different things to many different people. And when we think about design, you know, we often think about the process and how we get there. But inclusion is something that is, um, you know, more often associated in the business environment with workplace hiring practices and the way that we build teams. Um, and finding that it really is a, a new way of thinking or a new way of applying uh, a, an approach to how we make objects and solutions. So, is the flipping it on the other side is the exclusion uh, kind mm-hmm. of a, a, a lapse in understanding? Oh, interesting. Um, well, when I was writing the book, I realized that I really didn't understand uh, the definition of inclusion and exclusion, kind of in the root word, the etymology of it. So right. I looked up the uh, the root, and the, the root of both words is claudere, which is Latin for to shut. So exclusion is to shut out, and inclusion is to shut in. And we started to think about that mental model of like shut in and shut out circles the nature of exclusion, I think, becomes um, even more so a, a universal kind of experience that we've all had at some point in our lives. Uh, we've all experienced different ways of feeling shut out of either different aspects of society or access literally to a building or to uh, certain kind of resources. And so it's, it's a, um, I think, a topic that warrants more conversation um, in a way that we've all shared and experienced in some way with exclusion. But we don't necessarily talk about it because it brings up a lot of uh, negative feelings. What's What's interesting, and you noted in the book, uh, is the fact that as a culture, as a society, there are many instances where people overcome mismatches to either be able to work together, become friends, uh, you know, uh, start mm-hmm. dating. You know, there's a variety of different elements that we see that we understand in society. Yet, uh, kind of going back to what I said, there there, there has been this failure to connect this in, in a variety of other forms. Absolutely. So there's a number of inclusive designs that are always quietly working in our environments, and we may not know that they started with um, someone or two people or three people who identified a mismatch. 
and and then found a solution to bridge that mismatch that ended up benefiting much more people. So when I say mismatch, actually, the, the word derived from the World Health Organization's definition of disability, right. which in 2001 they, they redefined as a mismatch interaction between the features of a person's body the features of the environment in which they live, which is also known as the social model of disability. Right. And as we think about the um, the way that a mismatch might, you know, happen in one place and then another in our day and then another as we're out in the world, and those those mismatches start to build up like building blocks to larger types of exclusion. Um, so when we think about the the types of innovations that have come from people recognizing those mismatches, um, one one of my favorite examples is the typewriter which was invented by Pellegrino Turi and Countess Carolina Fontani de Fivizano in the <laughs> 1800s. I practiced that. Well said. You did, you did excellent. You. I'm sure I still butchered it. Um, but that, um, the two of them were very, very close and um, in the, the mid-1800s. And the Countess was blind. And when they were apart um, in this uh, time, in the mid-1800s, if you were blind, in order to author a letter, you had to dictate it to another human being who would write it down for you, which was not an awesome solution if you wanted confidential communication. And so together, Turi and the Countess created what's known as the first prototype of a typewriter so that the Countess could author her own letters. And that design, those first kind of key-driven um, ways of, of authoring a letter, has gone on to benefit many, many more people. You know, we may be sitting somewhere right now uh, in front of a keyboard or holding a phone that has one embedded inside of it. Um, you know, we've, there's a number of people who have benefited in many, many more ways of that particular design that was originally created to resolve a mismatch. You also mentioned that, that I guess, in, in today's society that uh, in terms of mismatches, there are instances where websites themselves have this problem. Absolutely. So there's many different types of being shut in and shut out. I think about inclusion and exclusion and the mismatches that happen to kind of create that delineation between the moments when we're included and excluded. And um, there's uh, physical environments. You know, sometimes it's easier to recognize something like stairs at the entrance of a building or the curbs that we cross when we, when we cross the street. Um, you know, a curb cut, just kind of a ramped transition down to the street, creates access for someone who uses a wheelchair, but also anyone who's on a bicycle or towing a suitcase or pushing a stroller also benefits from that design. Um, so if we think about how many different places in the world um, these designs show up in our environment, being able to recognize those in our own workplace um, and uh, and then you know also apply um, a design approach that has become a powerful tool. And we think about that in the physical environment in a very tangible way, but there's a huge, um, huge body of mismatches in the digital realm, in the digital environment. And website accessibility is one of those fundamental starting points for many companies as they think about how to start building towards inclusion. Right. And one thing I like to, you know, say to, you know, as I'm working with teams is that accessibility really is the baseline. It's the foundation. It's the baseline of integrity to any inclusive solution you will make, any inclusive um, environment or workplace. Because, so, um, sorry, just ability, ability is one of those things that, that transcends every other kind of human adversity. So when we design for accessibility, it ends up benefiting a much broader group of people. So give us a, an example of today uh, of a company that, that, that has understood this, 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 issue that relays uh, that that is out there 
and they are very aware of whatever the product may be of making sure that they are inclusive. There's a growing number of companies that are focusing on this practice. Um, And what I really am uh, noticing, back to the definition of inclusion, it happens in many different ways. Right. Uh, No no company today is a um, perfect model of this in practice, and um, in part because I think this work is really an ongoing and ever never-ending kind of evolution. Um, but I will highlight that, you know, there's, there's companies like Microsoft that have taken um, a, a, a long um, kind of marathon approach and understanding to the work that, that's required to build accessible and inclusive experiences. And so what you see happening there is it's starting to show up in, in many of the product solutions, it's starting to show up in the messaging. But the root of that really is the work that the company has done to build those inclusive practices into how they hire uh, new employees, those recognizing exclusion in the products that they create, and finding uh, methods of creating new solutions that directly involve the uh, wide range of people with different abilities, disabilities, um, life experiences in the design process, right. in the path of creating that solution. So there's, there's companies that are um, starting to really build this into how they work on a daily basis. Um, and what we see on the other end of that is um, some products emerging and, and some uh, workplace environments that are really starting to transform. Yeah, and I found it interesting that, that one of the things that you bring up uh, is the fact that in the course of this design and this understanding that, that it's very important to design with people and not for people. Absolutely. And so that's one of the core tenets has been for a very long time of inclusive design. Inclusive design is a practice that's been around for decades. Um, it's uh, evolved in different disciplines in academia, and um, there's a lot of um, you know pockets of examples of inclusive design since you know the 1970s. Uh, it's been uh, implemented, especially by Yuta Trevioranis at the OCAD, uh, Ontario College of Arts and Design in Toronto, has been leading a master's program in inclusive design. And one of the core tenets of, of her work and, and many other pioneers in this area is that it's a clear distinction about who is making those solutions, Um, understanding that the people who experience the greatest degree of exclusion, the greatest degree of mismatches, also have a a depth of expertise and a depth of um, skill and way of thinking about solutions that is a source of innovation for, for their lives and also could be a contribution to much to designing solutions at a much broader scale. So that designing in combination with people who have that expertise is a core tenet of inclusive design. One of the uh, the people that you bring up is a gentleman by the name of Don Porter, uh, and, and you talk about how he is he is pretty aware of some of these issues, specifically in in the in the video game industry in the gaming segment. Correct. Yes, John is a designer at Microsoft. Um, he is an avid gamer, uh, and uh, I highly recommend checking out his work. He's um, has this one of the stories I tell in the book is he has this great wall in his home, almost like a, uh, a pegboard that you would hang tools and, and and like a workshop on. But instead of tools, he has every video game controller in the history of the console game design, so Nintendo's <laughs> and Sega's and all those mounted up on the wall. And he calls it his wall of exclusion. Yeah, and that's because as he points out that every controller device has 
required two hands to play pretty much since the beginning of that industry. And not every player has two hands to play. Um, and John games primarily through speech commanding. He creates highly customized um, kind of uh, programs to create certain types of actions inside of games. Um, and so there's many different ways that people game, but the degree of work that goes into designing a solution that bridges that mismatch, you know, a game that's designed with a controller that requires two hands to play, in order to play, there's a whole game of just getting into the game in the first place. And uh, so John really brings this um, example to life. Uh, we share this, this story in more detail in the book, but also in his, his work at Microsoft, um, the, the way of bridging that is through you know, the, the many strategies that people use to uh, game and to passionately you know, persevere through the, uh, the design that is essentially not for, for an entire group of people. Um, and so to create solutions that then create access um, have become a source of um, great insight for what Xbox has recently released is the Xbox Adaptive Controller, which now translates game access for a wide type of interfaces. And, and this obviously, when you, when you're talking about the the inclusion here, you're talking about in many cases providing options for people that maybe they wouldn't have had there before. But for the company themselves, and we kind of touched on it at the top. This ends up being a bottom line impact for for the company, for whatever product it is, for the culture within the company, you know, having employees that are extremely happy to work there. And, you know, there's so many different aspects that that a company can see benefits from. Absolutely. And that's one thing that that really shifted in my thinking as I was writing uh, Mismatch is that shut in, shut out, include, exclude model um, uh, really, for me, evolved to more of a cycle of exclusion and inclusion. And that cycle has interrelated points. They all influence one another. Um, there's five points in my opinion. There's, you know, who makes a solution, um, what they choose to make at the end of the day, why they make it, the purpose, the culture, and the mission surrounding that. There's who they make those solutions with and for, the assumptions they make about people. And then there's the tools, like how a solution is made. And those tools themselves can also gate who can access a profession, who contributes to the solution. And so that, that idea of you could really start at any of these points on the cycle of exclusion. It's just an ongoing thing that we are constantly as solution makers, business leaders, designers, engineers, we are constantly at these points of choice between recognizing exclusion and how to shift it towards inclusion or recognizing exclusion and, and making the conscious choice that exclusion is something that is going to be built into this product and let's do it with clarity and intention rather than it being an accidental harm um, if it's something that we need to make a trade-off in our, our businesses. Um, so thinking about that shift of, um, you know, I, I really love to think of it. I've seen this happen. If we start to shift, um, you know, the tools, in a work environment that require that are designed to be a uh, sorry required to be a designer. The type right. of software today usually requires a high degree of visual acuity, a high degree of manual dexterity to use something uh, to create a software interface. Um, but that tool also dictates then who can be a designer. You must then have a high degree of visual acuity and manual dexterity. If we were to start to evolve those design tools to work for a wider range of abilities, then it would shape who could show up and be a designer in that environment. And there's 
thousands of ways to think about that in our own workplaces, which, you know, starts with any point in that cycle and it starts to have an influence on then who shows up. It influences what kind of solutions are made at the end of the day and so on. We're joined by Kat Holmes, who is the author of the book Mismatch, How Inclusion Shapes Design. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan. Loney 21. I, I, in looking at that, the cycle exclusion, I had I had noted something in, in looking at all five of those. Uh, and, and I was surmising that when you look at them, the why we make, I, I would think, would be an area where the potential for exclusion might be the greatest. And that's just my my opinion. Uh-huh. And I say that because I think there are times that when you're thinking about a specific product, the why we make is probably one of the things that is lower down on the, on the totem pole for the for the companies that are producing it. Mm, interesting. Yes, you I mean in terms of we don't really take a moment to stop and think. Right. Exactly. <laughs> a lot. A lot of times, a product will be made just because. Well, we know it'll sell. So, period. That that has to be the end of the discussion. Absolutely, and that's one thing that again, um, this is a, a great book and resource as I was writing, I highly recommend as well, called The End of Average by Todd Rose. And Rose does a fantastic job of, of really testing the assumptions that we have about who we're designing for and also why we're designing. And that um, average, the assumption about there being an average human being is something that he, he proposed and it really stuck with me. Um, that when we create a solution and why we make solutions. We often think about how can I reach the broadest possible market? The 80%, uh, 80-20 rule is something that's taught often in design schools and engineering schools. If I could reach the 80% kind of average that that benefits a much broader group of people and then the edge cases will kind of come along for the ride over time. And um, he really points to the source of that uh, assumption, really the assumption. And it was an idea that was fabricated um, in the mid-1800s by a Belgian mathematician and astronomer named Adolf Catelet. And so just going back and understanding the origins of our assumptions about an average human being and that translating back to testing our assumptions about why we're making a solution and why we would, um, you know, make certain choices about that design. Um, I think also one of the the underlying points that I love you bringing up here with, with why we make is... Um, I see a lot of companies coming into inclusion or inclusive design and, and, and really coming, really trying to set out to design the universal kind of perfect solution that will work for all people. And again, that itself can be a never-ending challenge. Right. Um, it is a very specific and kind of design work to create, to create a universal design. But what I love about inclusive design is it's less about the outcome and it's focused more on how we get to that outcome. Right. And so if we think about the purpose of why we make something, um, my favorite definition of inclusive design is it's creating a diversity of ways for people to participate in a shared experience with a sense of belonging in that experience. And I think that really is the marker of a great inclusive design. One of the things I wanted to touch on before uh, we we end here, and you have a, an interesting figure uh, diagram in the book, and going back to disability, and it says disability with the not equal sign, with the equal sign with the line through it, personal health condition. So disability does not equal personal health condition. Disability equals mismatch human interactions. And the, my question is, how close do you think we are 
in our business and our culture from having that second definition being the actual definition that almost everybody kind of takes to heart? Mm-hmm. Well, there are many different definitions of, dif- of disability, and um, it's a, a complex and nuanced space that um, there's a lot of uh, experts and scholars on the on the nuances there. But the thing that stood out to me about back to that World Health Organization's definition of disability and framing it in terms of mismatches, it squarely put the responsibility on me as an engineer, as a designer, as a business leader, and and the teams around me to stop and think and recognize that every choice that we were making in the design of our solutions was either increasing or decreasing those mismatches with uh, between people and the world around them. Yeah. And so in terms of how far off we are, it depends on each individual person who's taking that moment as they're creating a solution to really stop, reflect, and take a moment to recognize what, you know, who might be excluded, whose uh, voice is missing from my process and the feedback that I'm gathering. Uh, who has the most to lose if I make changes to this solution, even though it may seem like an innovation for some, it may create um, a, a complete lack of access for, for other people. Um, yeah. So each time someone stops and thinks and, and recognize that and makes, recognizes that and makes a tip towards that, I think we get a little bit closer. Kat, it's a fantastic book. Thank you for coming on. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.